What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Good Theology Podcast. So great to have you all with us. My name is Jake, and I am joined by my amazing esteemed co-host, the one and only David Campbell. And also, for the first time ever, I'm joined by my friend Josh Garcia. Hey, what's up? Who also is a member of and leader in our church out here in Los Angeles. What's up, David and Josh? How are you guys doing? Hey, you um, want to go first? <laughs> I, I survived the move thanks to the moving company and my wife's hard work. Terrific yeah. news. David has moved into his new home. Congratulations. We're very excited for you. Yeah. And uh, is this going to be your permanent new background, David? Or is there a, uh, will there be a well, new no, home you, library? You want books back because I look more intelligent if I got books behind me, apparently. That was exactly so, what I meant by that. Yes. The problem is that I need to buy a new set of bookcases and have some carpentry work done and it may be a while. Got it. Oh, so your bookshelves are like custom done. No, well, by Ikea. Um, they're, all, <laughs> they're all fixed in place. So we had to leave them behind. Uh, they're attached to the wall. And uh we're going to have we're going to uh have some sort of fancy stuff put in between the bookshelves which according to my wife will make them look five times uh classier and more expensive than they are so that's that is going to take a while uh probably a few weeks i love that so we look forward to seeing the progress what was that i said we look forward to seeing the progress Yes, in a few weeks, God willing, the books will reappear. Great. Well, this, this background honestly is superb. We got like half of it a wall, half a door. <laughs> it's well, amazing. it's very aesthetic. It's amazing. That's uh, great. When we're all done recording today, you should give us a little walk around so we can see the new place. I can. Yeah, we wouldn't want to do that on the camera because then people would see this new mega mansion that you live in and they'd start answering, asking all kinds of questions. Well, exactly. Oh, darn. I thought I turned that off. Yeah, I thought you did too. Yeah. This is a, sure it's an ongoing it joke at this point for good theology is David's email emails. tones. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's how it goes. Uh, he's a very popular person. So, Josh, how are you, man? Doing good. I mean, so glad to be on here. I'm excited to, you know, to chat with you guys. So thanks awesome. for joining us. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to change up uh, the format a bit for uh, this podcast and, you know, assuming that, that Josh does well. Oh yeah. That's a, <laughs> that's a big thing. Yeah. We're going to change up the format and we're bringing Josh on to help, I guess, kind of mediate our conversation mm -hmm. a bit and ask probing follow-up questions and making sure that I we don't. I suggest we get into fights all the time. Uh, well, okay. Mediate is maybe the wrong word. Uh, I don't <laughs> facilitate. Know. Facilitate. I think that makes more sense. Yeah. You know, help us. I maybe think I, I a little off. So I think we're. I'm good to go. God awesome. Willing. God willing. Help us dig a little bit deeper and um, slow down. Maybe at times when we need yeah. to slow down and clarify and all that kind of stuff. So without further ado, Josh, why don't you take us into today's convo? Yeah. So today we'll be chatting on the one of the beatitudes. Um, found in Matthew 5. And this one specifically is verse 8, where it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And I, I think the conversation around this is going to be very interesting because there's just a lot to go into 
I, I think for the most part, the Beatitudes have a very paradoxical relationship to them and uh, it'd be really cool to dive in. Like, okay, what, what does it mean that we get to see God mm. because we have um, pure hearts? So I guess before anything else, let's, let's start there. Um, any initial thoughts on that Beatitude specifically? Yeah, that's really cool, actually. I like that you called them paradoxical. Um, Seemingly paradoxical, yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that brought to mind to me for that, and I don't know that this necessarily would have been something in the mind of Jesus's Jewish audience, but certainly from a pagan background, I don't know that they would have thought that the pure in heart are the ones who will see God. If anything, the ones who achieve God-likeness and see God, so to speak, are the ones who can grab all of the power right. and can take all of the control and climb over the backs of others. And so in that sense, it is very paradoxical to the pagan mind um, because seeing God or climbing the stairway to the heavenlies is done quite differently in yeah. the Christian world. So it's it comes down to the purity of our heart, not the uh, grabbing of our, our power. So anyway, that probably wasn't in the mind of this Jewish audience, but it did make me think about that as you talked about the paradoxical nature of it. For sure. And I, I mean, I'm, we're just looking at kind of the progression of things like poor in spirit, they'll inherit the kingdom of heaven and, and how it just doesn't make sense from a naturalistic point of view, how that would be the natural cause mm. of, of whatever that first condition was. Um, but yeah, before we go on, I, I'd love to hear um, David's thoughts on this as well, specifically the beatitude on blessed are the pure in heart for they will see the kingdom of God, for they will see God. Yeah, I, I mean, I think when you, if you're going to contrast this to the pagan environment, the Greeks uh, connected knowledge of God with um, intellect and philosophy, with either with intellect and philosophy as in, let's say, Plato, uh, so that the philosopher was the one who really connected with the divine, uh, or um, at a more popular level, uh, the uh, you know popular religion involved worship of the gods and ecstatic experiences in Jesus' time. They were called the mystery religions, um, which developed into something else we call Gnosticism. And uh, so you've either got a kind of a hyper-experientialism or you've got a, a hyper-intellectualism, neither of which were rooted and grounded in what we would call morality or a sense of ethics or what is right and what is wrong. And so, you know, Jesus' teaching is firmly rooted in the tradition of the Old Testament mm -hmm. and not of the what we call the Hellenistic, which means the Greek culture, which means the culture of the Roman Empire um, in which Palestine was located. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of influence even within Palestine because uh, Jewish people went and spread across different parts of the empire. They began to speak Greek instead of Hebrew or Aramaic, and they began to take in uh, and mix uh, Old Testament um, ideas with the kind of stuff that was going on out in the pagan culture. So Jesus, uh, you know, has no, no time for that at all. He's, his concern 
it, for instance, in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, his concern is to show what the true meaning of the Old Testament is. And he applies that like a, a dagger, I guess, in the hearts of everyone who's listening to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And, and I guess I wanted to dive a bit deeper into that, like somehow calling back to the Old Testament and getting the people to a certain moral uprightness. Um, but I think it's really interesting that the description is pure in heart. So it's not just about having an outwardly moral, um, you know, moral appearance, like looking like you're, you're doing good, but something about um, internally, how are your motives and how could, how could you cultivate that in your life so that you're not just one way on the outside and a different way on the inside? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's only one real answer to that question. Um and I think that the answer is your relationship with Christ. Uh, I think that the way you cultivate purity of heart is the acceptance and embrace of the reality that Christ is the one who had purity of heart. Uh, and that brings you into grace and the reception of purity as a gift, which you work out and live out as opposed to trying to fake it on the outside um, and being settled with that. Or by your own strength and willpower, trying to achieve purity of heart uh, on your on your own. So it's a simple answer; it's not an easy answer. Yeah. Um, but as relationship with God goes, it requires dedication and devotion. Yeah. Any thoughts on this? Well, Jesus was fighting the Jewish establishment, as we know, and that manifests itself in two different ways. Uh, in the New Testament, they're described as the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the guys who ran the temple. And so their idea of true religion, if you want to use that phrase, was the performance of all of the temple rituals and sacrifices. Strangely enough, it seems that many of the Sadducees didn't believe in some of the supernatural dimensions of the Old Testament, including the existence of angels or even teaching of the resurrection of the dead and things like this. Uh, So they got so immersed in their rituals, they lost sight of the power of God. And I guess, you know, there's a lesson in that. Then there was the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the group who ran the synagogues. And there were hundreds and hundreds of synagogues scattered throughout Judea. And the synagogues were the places where um, the law was taught. And that was something that developed in the two or three centuries prior to the time of Jesus, didn't exist in the time of the Old Testament. Uh, So there was a division within Judaism of the synagogues in every local community where the law was taught. And then on the other hand, the temple in Jerusalem, and one group had control over the one part and the other over the other part. And so Jesus is uh, addressing both of them because they're both wrong in different ways. But the point that of the point that joins uh, the both Pharisees and Sadducees is they found value and worth in externals. So whether it was external rituals in the temple or whether it was your external performance of certain religious rules, that was where you got your virtue from. You you basically were able to earn 
merit before God. And the Jews had a theology or had an idea that, you know, God would balance your all the deeds of your life on a scales and they might tip in one way or tip in the other way, depending on how many good or how many bad you had done. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a profound critique, particularly of the Pharisees who are saying, you know, what they'd done was they reduced the law uh, to the level where they could honestly say they had obeyed it. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, well, you gutted the true meaning of the law. You know, you say that you're right with God if you haven't committed adultery, but adultery is far deeper than that. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's something, as you pointed out, that's in the heart. And so his critique here, blessed are those who pure in heart, he's going past the idea of ritual purity of the temple or legalistic purity of rules that you're following. Uh, and he's saying, no, there's something deeper. And this is the kind of purity that you cannot produce by your own efforts outside of the grace of God. Right. And so you have to come as beggars before God, mm. uh, as sinners before God, mm-hmm. crying out to God for mercy. Yeah. And Jesus takes the meaning of the Old Testament law in its full radical intention. And that's what he's presenting here. Which is such a gift. And when when you read some of Charles Spurgeon's writings on the Beatitudes, one of the things he talks about is how, well, he, for example, he calls blessed are the poor in spirit for, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He calls that the front porch of blessedness. Like that's like the entryway into the home of blessing mm. or is the first step in the staircase of the Beatitudes. And one of the things that occurred to me as I was looking at this beatitude in Matthew 5, 8 is how it is looking at it as a gift of grace is essentially where I think you would land if you look at the staircase as a whole. So if you begin with blessed are the poor in spirit, you're, you're beginning with the recognition that I am spiritually poor. I am spiritually bankrupt, which then leads to you uh, mourning the effects of your sin which then leads you to being meek and humble before God and others, which then leads you to, uh, I believe, merciful is the next one. You're merciful towards people who share your same condition, your same spiritual poverty. And the the next logical staircase, therefore, is just as you said, David, you, you're crying out to God for mercy because you recognize not only your own, but everybody's shared condition of sinfulness. Um, and therefore, purity of heart is is God's gracious gift to you uh, upon your confession of need. Yeah. Uh, I, I like that you brought the, up like the progression of things and how kind of the entryway is, you know, the, the, the poverty in our spirit. Now oh, I skipped hunger and thirst for righteousness yes. in between meek and, and merciful, which, which also fits perfectly because, because of your recognition of your spiritual poverty, you therefore hunger for the thing mm, that you don't have. Yeah. I guess the question I wanted to ask, along those lines is how do you walk with confidence that, okay, I have a pure heart in Jesus while at the same time being cognizant of the fact that I have a poverty in spirit? Well, I think that uh, you don't remain spiritually poor when you come into Christ. Right. Uh, Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is now yours in Christ Jesus. So you may begin with spiritual poverty, but you do not remain spiritually poor. Now, David probably has some good insights into 
my my this is my guess. I don't know if I'm right, but my guess is that David in his mind went to Romans chapter seven when you asked that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> see a smile on his face. But but my sense is that that would tie into uh, what you're asking, and and David can espouse that much better than I. What's interesting here to me is that purity is a synonym synonymous with single-mindedness. Mm-hmm. And remember over in James, it talks about the double-minded mm-hmm. person will get nothing from God. And that uh, word, I believe, is the Greek translation of the original Hebrew phrase where the children of Israel wavered, went back and forth. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, or it says, don't, that the double-minded man uh, wavers. Um, anyway, it's connected with that idea of wavering between two opinions. And the idea is, as James puts it, that on the one hand, we say we'll follow, uh, but until the cost gets too great, until it's not just the external performance of something but the radicality of what God requires of us becomes apparent. And then, you know, we're in it if if there's benefit for us. But when the going becomes tough and the demand becomes too great, then we're no longer in it. And that kind of person will get nothing from God. Well, when he says here, blessed to the pure in heart, that's the person who's in it. And mm-hmm. um, none of us, obviously, is pure in heart um, as you so aptly quoted in Romans 7 and verse 14, Paul says, um, I'm sold under sin. And, you know, well, Paul, how can you say that? Well, he, he realized it's, it's you, if you read Romans, you have to take chapter 6, 7, and 8 in tension. So we're in a battle against sin. And yet now for the first time, we have the power by the Holy Spirit's presence to fight back against it. The first thing to realize when you become a Christian is you realize or should realize the depth of your own sinfulness. So when you become a Christian, you begin to get a glimpse of who God is. And all of a sudden you realize, man, you know, I am in, I am in deep trouble here outside of the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is that the longer you walk with the Lord, the more profound a sense of your own inadequacy is mm-hmm. because you have a more profound sense of the holiness and perfection of God. And you read, so that's why Paul says, you know, I'm sold under sin. I can't do what I want to do. You know, he doesn't mean he can't do anything. He just means, you know, I, I want to obey God fully and perfectly in my life, but I, I can't get there. And none of us will in this life. But Jesus says, blessed are the pure. But the mercy of God is, I think, that he sees that if I have a genuine desire to follow him, he treats me as being pure in heart. I want to follow the Lord. I can't follow through in everything I do. I will fail, but the desire of my heart is to follow the Lord. And, you know, when things get tough, uh, I may stumble a bit, but I don't walk out. I'm still here. I'm still Mm -hmm. serving God. And, that's the encouraging thing, I think, for me in in that God counts me in that place as being pure in heart, mm-hmm. in not in the sense that I'm sinlessly perfect, but in the sense that 
the motivation of my heart is single-minded. It is for God and his kingdom, even though I still live in a place of imperfection. Sorry, that's a really long answer. No, that's great. Very comprehensive. And I think it really um, answered that, that, that question. Um, I wanted to shift and move on to the second part of this beatitude, which is, uh, for they will see God. Uh, just some initial thoughts on that. How does a purity in our hearts mm -hmm. lead to us seeing God and in seeing God in what way? I think there's a few different ways to answer that question. Um, one, one way that I answer it is uh, in that same vein of grace. Um, I think one reading of that can be that we see God in Christ when we cry out to God for mercy, because Christ is the father's answer to our cry for mercy. He is the ultimate revelation of the father to us, of himself and how he reconciles us back to himself. My sense is that seeing God in a, uh, in a literal sense is probably eschatological. Um, and certainly there's a lot of New Testament tie in there when it comes to seeing Christ and seeing God in Revelation. But I think you can take it a couple of different ways. Now, I'm sure Jesus meant something specific, uh -huh. but I think theologically we're on safe ground to, to see a few different ideas at, at play there. So, right. What do you think, David? Well, I think you're right. It's an eschatological statement. It's in the future tense. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart, that's present tense, for they will see God. I think the primary reference is to the resurrection of the dead. Uh, or, you know, if I die prior to the return of Christ, uh, I will be in what Jesus described as paradise. I will be in the presence of God and I will see him. I think he's talking about uh, eschatolo eschatological reward, that is to say, what is going to happen uh, either when a person dies or when Christ returns. However, having said that, I do believe that in a limited and different sense, mm -hmm. each of us does see God. Mm -hmm. If we know the Lord and have the Holy Spirit within us, we can see Christ, as Mother Teresa used to say, in one another. Right. Mm. And, uh, and that's First John as well. And it, and absolutely. And, and so we, we know God imperfectly. Paul says through a glass darkly in one Corinthians 13 mm -hmm. now, uh, imperfectly. Uh, but we do know God. We will see him then face to face, the Bible says, which is, right. I think what that's Paul's exposition of what Jesus is saying here. Yep. But I, I, I don't think we should underestimate the fact that we do have experiential knowledge of Christ and of God now, and yep. we see him in a figurative sense, uh, even though not literally. Yeah. Or maybe figurative and literal is, is, well, I guess that is the right language, but I would say one degree of glory to another degree of glory is maybe another way to say it. Because I think in a very real sense, we, we see God in Christ, whether that be probably most pragmatically through his bride, through his church. If the church is the body of Christ, then we see Christ in his church. And um, I think we see Christ through his Holy Spirit as well, at, you know, at work in the church. 
through demonstration of power and certainly through the transformation of individual Christians as well. When people experience otherwise unexplainable transformation of life, mm. I think we are seeing yeah. Christ on display. And so certainly, you know, have to agree with David. We don't see him literally, yeah, um, but we do see him. And so that's why I think we, we are on safe ground. I think that the immediate meaning of it is eschatological. I think also that there are there are interim understandings right. or experiences of that knowledge of God or that sight of God as well. Yeah, when I when I hear pure purity of heart, um, that 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 verse in Titus about uh, to do, to the pure, all things are pure, mm. kind of comes to mind and kind of shows like how it is a filter at which we can perceive the world mm. and how. I can't recall the exact scripture reference, but how, you know, literally you could resurrect someone from the dead, but somebody who is so far gone will still not believe God. And so is there something to be said about how, if you have a period of heart, you, you, you see, you see God at work? Yes. Is, is there something a bit more to that? I think certainly uh, whatever our presuppositions are determine what we yeah. see everything to be. Um and so I can't say with any level of confidence that that's what Titus is on. Right. That's what Paul is on about to Titus. But yeah. um, I think your your principle is certainly on track. I'm just uh, thinking here of Second um, Corinthians chapter three at the end, where he talks about see, beholding the Lord with unveiled face. That's where I turned to as well, David, while you were talking earlier. Be beholding is a present participle, and then uh, the next phrase is, "We are being transformed." That's present passive. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what he's saying is, I mean, the unveiling, what we see in this case is not, it's primarily the true meaning of, of the scriptures. That's, that's the context of it. But he goes on to add that we are beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, you could say that's the glory of the Lord as revealed in the scriptures, the prophetic passages and so on. Mm -hmm. But I think there's, I think there's something more in it than well, that. I think chapter four and verse six is a good place to look for that, that it's it's the knowledge of God's glory, as you were saying, displayed in the face of Christ. So as you say, some, something, I, I hesitate to say something deeper than than seeing God in scripture, because obviously we have immensely high regard for scripture, but it's it's seeing Christ, the author of scripture in scripture. How, uh, genuinely, uh, my belief is, and I think that this is what Christians believe, whether they articulate it or not is that we anticipate and expect an encounter with with the the god of scripture not just scripture itself um and oh absolutely uh, and i think that's part of what he's saying he's saying that the jews are blinded you know the 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 jewish teachers who don't see christ and don't accept christ they're blinded to the true meaning of scripture um but uh, the veil has been taken away for us so that we do understand uh, the true meaning of scripture, which is obviously Christ. And, and then, then he adds this, we're beholding the glory of the Lord, this sort of mystical part of it. Mm -hmm. So somewhere in there, somewhere in there is an idea that, uh, our, our knowledge takes us into a level of experience of Christ, uh, which, you know, which may be beyond rational explanation. For instance, my pastor, that uh, when I first became a Christian, he just died a couple of months ago in, in, at the age of 85. 
And uh, he had been um, struggling with the call of God in his life. Uh, and he went to a retreat and he came home and um, he heard someone walking up the stairs. It was a creek and it was an old wooden house. And uh, a man walked in the door and said, you know, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men well. and uh, disappeared. And he was afraid for years. I think I was, you know, one of the, probably not the first person, but one of the first people that he told because he was afraid that people would think he was crazy, but uh, he saw the Lord and he became an incredibly powerful evangelist wow. who saw all sorts of things happen. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and what can you say to that? I mean, Jesus came yeah. and talked to him. It wasn't an angel. It, he identified himself as the Lord. And uh, so I think that's possible. I really do. I don't yeah. if Jesus could appear he you know, to Paul. Abraham in, in, on his way to Sodom with the other angels mm -hmm. and uh, identify himself as, as the Lord, as Yahweh, that's Jesus. It can't be the Father. Mm -hmm. uh, then why can't Jesus appear? You know, and you hear these stories of obviously the angels many times, many, many times, hundreds, thousands of times appearing to people, particularly in persecuted countries, particularly where Christians are persecuted, particularly in Muslim countries. Mm -hmm. You hear of angels appearing, but sometimes it's Jesus who appears. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear from the context. And, and I, I'm not going to deny that. I just think it's part of my, you know, gripe about being uh white and living in the western world is that that we don't have appreciation or understanding of the supernatural power of god and the supernatural realities you know in which we live in the same way that our brothers and sisters in many many other parts of the world do have mm -hmm. we got lots of head knowledge mm -hmm. but at, at that supernatural level we fall short so it's harder for us to exegete this phrase beholding the glory of the lord we're struggling with it you know, exactly. Uh, but, but, you know, yes, uh, yes. others don't struggle. We are, we are enlightened into limited reading of the scripture. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Really powerful. Sounds like you have some thoughts. You're thinking well, well I just think, you know, um, I just so, so strongly want to recover for myself and for anybody whom, God gives me to shepherd and influence a, an understanding that we are a spiritual people mm. that Christ really, Christ really has brought us into union with himself and that we are to live with expectation of encounter with him. Now he may never walk up the stairs to your old wooden cabin mm. on your prayer retreat and walk in and say, follow me. But man, I hope he does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think it's wrong to hope for that. I think it's great. And in whatever your expectation is, I, th I think it should at least consist of encountering God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Often. Yeah. And I want to say through the church as well, you know, being the actual body of Christ here on earth and kind of wanted to shift the conversation to that and, and say that, how do we then see God in the church today? I mean, you, you think about the church, it's uh, made out of imperfect people. We're supposed to see God 
the epitome of perfection? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the ways that we could see God in the church? Um, you know, with the whole to- uh, topic of purity mm-hmm. um, coming together on that. Well, I think to some extent we've covered some of those bases. I think we can see Christ. We see Christ primarily in his work in one another. Mm. That's primarily how we see Christ. Um, You know, we experience Christ in various ways. We can experience Christ by the power of his spirit when we worship, you know, when we pray, even if there's nobody with us. But, But seeing Christ, I think, is seeing his body at work. And, and in fact, um, we are the body of Christ. That means that it's his body and we're part of it. And, you know, we use these metaphors, these ideas, these pictures from scriptures so frequently that we forget they were pretty radical, that we are part of God in that sense. Mm -hmm. And, if we're part of the body of Christ, we can see Christ at work through his body. It's just as simple as that. Yeah, which I think makes it more than metaphor. Mm. That, that was one of the things, David, that I was so struck by when we were going through that book, The Incarnation of God. And, and it seems a simple thing, but Paul never says we are like the body of Christ. He just says we are, which I think speaks to exactly what you're saying. You know, it's uh, we can just brush over these statements. And, you know, typically when we when we hear the phrase body of Christ, we tend to think of the social interactivity of people in the church and how our personalities fit together or in the context of Paul, how our spiritual gifts fit together and complement one another. And certainly there's that aspect to it. But I think it is more than that also in that Paul literally means we are the body of Christ. Yeah. That's how, I mean, his, his phrase that he uses all the time is we're in Christ. Paul, what do you mean? We're, we're in him. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, that's how unified we are to him. And so if you want to encounter him, if you want salvation, salvation is, is in him, which means it's in the church. Yeah. Transformation is in the church. Now, let's, let's bring this to a, like an application level, right? Like we all, I want to say deep within our hearts, the desire, you know, eternity was, you know, planted in our hearts. The desire to see is to see God. How then do we, practically pursue, mm-hmm. um, you know, a purity of heart so that we may be able to see God. Well, how do we maybe manifest? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's, um, it can be really obvious things that certainly the scriptures have a lot to say about. Um, I mean, even Jesus himself goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to uh, talk about how we act in our interpersonal relationships. And certainly those are expressions. Yeah. Um, of being pure of heart or of being peacemakers as he'll go on in the next beatitude to talk about. Um, and that could be your love and treatment of enemy. Um, it could be how you uh, approach money. Uh, Paul would go on to say and, and talk about, here's how you then live as a husband and a wife. Here's how you uh, interact with your boss and your employee and um He'll, he'll get into all kinds of specific things in terms of unity in the church and spiritual gifts are a big part of it. The, the, the Bible is not short on instruction for what it looks like to uh, obey the command of Christ um, in loving one another as we have been loved. Um, and I think going back to the beginning, what David was saying is um, it's recognizing the call 
and the life that we're called to live that's worthy of Christ um, as something that we can't do apart from him. Yeah. Which I think brings it back full circle to, to grace. Grace. Um, but not simply grace as, um, okay, cool, I'm good with God, but grace as in God it actually wants to help me be good. Yeah. So I think the way that Paul approached this is summed up in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. And he talks about why did God send his son? Well, God sent his son uh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Hmm. And so purity of heart is the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us. What is the righteous re requirement of the law? It is all that the, the law uh, commands us to do. Uh, obviously, um, those parts of the law involving the ceremonial sacrificial system have been fulfilled and completed by the sacrifice of Christ. So we don't have to do that anymore. But the rest of the law, uh, the it, as Paul says in chapter 13 of Romans, is summed up. It's all gathered together in the idea of love. So that, you know, all the various commandments in the Old Testament, whether it was, you know, treating the poor properly, not moving your neighbor's boundary stone, not having um, sex with your neighbor's wife, all those things are an expression of love. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what God wants for us. Now, the Pharisees had God pursuing the requirements of the law, but they had no, they thought they could do it on their own strength, not by the empowering of the spirit. We realize we can't do it in our own strength. We're sinners. We need the grace of God. But, um, you know, and, and at the end of Romans chapter nine, that's why Paul says, you know, the Jews who sought fulfillment of the law failed. Uh, whereas Gentiles who weren't seeking the law wound up understanding its true meaning because they found Christ, who is mm. the goal of the law. And so I think it's it's a lifestyle in which, you know, and I, I do think there's always a tension where the, the in our human nature, we always default back to legalism. And legalism slash moralism is a, you know, you can fall into it without even realizing it. You can have preaching going on in a church and it can become moralistic and mm -hmm. you know you wonder why people get burned out and disillusioned and walk away because there isn't an emphasis people are afraid to preach the utter sinfulness and depravity of human nature but you have to preach that in order to get people to cry out for the supernatural presence of god in your mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. and that's what breaks through uh that's what we need um and uh you know, that that's to me is Paul's commentary on Jesus statement uh, about here about being pure in heart and they will see the kingdom of God. Wow. Uh, I think this is such a fruitful discussion. Now, like, I wonder why the name is Sermon on the Mount, because I feel like each little line could be a sermon in itself. It should be sermons on the Mount. <laughs> this, um, this is so much to um take away from this. And so, um, any concluding thoughts? 
No, I think we've, I think, yeah. Okay. Done an adequate job. Cool. Thank you so much for. Thanks everybody. Yeah. For joining us at Good Theology. And uh, thanks Josh for joining us. Oh, glad to be here. Helping yes, us change up the format. What do you think, David? Do you approve? He's a good guy, right? Uh, he's kept us in line. Yeah. <laughs> he did his job. He did a really good job. Thank you. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, thanks everyone for joining us. Hey, if you haven't already, um, check out this new tool that we've developed uh, at the Vast Network called yeah. Pulpit AI. You can go to pulpitai.com. Uh, already we've had, uh, I think, close to 1,500 churches, pastors, church leaders sign up for uh, early access to this tool that is going to help take your sermon and exponentially increase its discipleship applicability between Sundays. So actually, the questions that we yep. uh, asked today for this podcast episode uh, were pulpit AI generated and Josh Garcia perfected. Yes. Is the way we would say it. Um, and so it's a really cool tool. And we think it'll be very helpful for everything from doing podcasts like this to devotionals, discussion questions for your small group leaders, blog posts, everything in between. Pulpitai.com. Check it out. It's going to be launching very very soon. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will see you next week. God bless.